Hey, what's up, Fadegree family? This is Elizabeth, and I've got some great information for you. Hey, look, I'm a chronic overspender and not very good with my money, but luckily I met Brian from BoundlessFinancialSolutions.com. He helped me set up a budget and learn how to invest my money, and he even helped me understand my retirement. The team at BoundlessFinancialSolutions.com doesn't just work with individuals either. They work with businesses and nonprofits as well. What's awesome is they won't ever cold call you or spam your email. You tell them your needs, your hopes and dreams, and they will provide you with the best options at your convenience. Listeners of Fade to Gray can call 413-977-9967 and ask for Brian. Or you can email him directly at brian at bfs-team.com. That's B-R-I-A-N at bfs-team.com. And mention the podcast to receive a free consultation. That's hundreds of dollars in value. Services are available where licensed. Look, you have no excuse not to get your finances in order. So visit BoundlessFinancialSolutions.com and let them remove your financial fears. Ladies and idiots. This is the Fade to Gray podcast. Everything will be aces. Let's get faded, guys. Hell yeah. He has many, and I mean many, leather-bound books on shelves made of rich mahogany. Now you've heard of gay conversion therapy. Well, this is gray conversion therapy. I think you're going to like it. I'm not braver than you. I'm just drunker than you. And you're fabulous. You deserve to be told you're fabulous. What do you think about the podcast? It sucks. Nice. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Fade to Gray. He's a guitar player in the band Sherwood, writer of dank podcast jingles, host of Depolarize, Reconstruct, and most recently, the You Have Permission podcast. Politically, he loves big government, but I'll give him some grace. Here he is, Dan Koch. Whoa, 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 whoa. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Chris, Chris, I told you. Okay, hold on. Two, Two points, two points here. Number one. My day job, I do not write podcast jingles. I write (laughs) advertising music and the podcast placements do not pay the bills. It is the television ads that pay the bills. Oh, Uh, so that's fine. You just you didn't know. Maybe you've been listening to too much Passer with no answers. I I have been listening to Passer with no answers. That is absolutely correct. Which Joey did not pay me a dollar for. So that's no part of my income. Oh, I let him. him, I told him. I gave him permission. Uh Ah, See what I did there? This is the second episode in a row we've had a little bit of Joey bashing. And I might be very okay with it. (laughs) I wonder if I can make it three. Of course, he's great. Well, your songs on those podcasts are amazing, actually. I I think the quality is very good. Agreed. Ah. Thank you. Uh, and then the second thing is, I don't know that I would say I believe in big government. I politically, <laughs> I am center left, and okay. uh, so I'm a I'm a centrist. I'm a moderate. I think that the two sides should duke it out. Generally speaking, all things being equal, uh, but yeah, I do believe that like capitalism is fantastic, but it is inherently uh, amoral, and actually, it's probably inherently it tends toward an unfair distribution of goods that do not correspond to the input of effort that citizens put in. Therefore, we do need regulations to make things more fair, not in the sense of equal outcomes, but equal, uh, what's the word they use? Proportional, proportional equality, proportional to the inputs. And capitalism, because of the, as Einstein said, the single most interesting mathematical principle in the universe is uh, um, compound interest. 
And that goes automatically by default to the people who already have resources. It doesn't go to those who don't have extra resources. So that's the kind of big government, if you want to call it that, that I do like. <laughs> well, I was kind of just messing around. I know with you, you were. <laughs> <laughs> Any chance to talk? <laughs> we actually had a guy on the podcast a while back named Adrian Romero, who also questions capitalism and kind of has maybe a little bit of the same viewpoint that you do about it being amoral. Um, yeah. And that was an interesting conversation too. But uh, I understand that, you know, you've got so much going on in your life that I don't even know that we want to stay too much into politics today. Yeah, no, I don't really want to talk about politics. I do. I just, I do like capitalism quite a bit. It's, I have a mortgage. I have a yeah. job that I make money from corporations who need music for their ads. I'm all for capitalism. So are you marketing yourself, Dan? Is How does that work? Are you, I mean, we, we don't have to stay too, too long on this, but I'm wondering as a musician myself, how do you get those accounts? How do you seek those out? Oh, dude, that's too long of a conversation. Email me later. Yeah, I got you. All right, cool. <laughs> so I'm happy to talk about it, but it's it's boring. Yeah. Right com. I'm curious about um, all these podcasting adventures that you have started. Some of them are still going on. A new one that you've started. How did you get into podcasting? What was it about podcasting that drew your interest and your time? Because you seem like a very intelligent dude. And so I know you're not going to be somebody who wants to waste their time. So you think that, you know, like, talk to us about podcasting. Why podcasting for Dan Coke? Yeah, well, I mean, in terms of wasting time, uh, if you had a church, if you pastored a church and there were a thousand people in it, nobody would w question whether that was a good use of your time. Um, and so I have kind of a number in my head that's not exact, but like, if X number of people are listening, then I never question whether or not I'm wasting my time. Now, if like 10 of my friends were listening and I was spending 10 hours to get them to listen to one hour, that might be a waste of time. But um, so the the stuff that drew me to it, well, you know, I do the commercial composition. That's my job. And so I'm pretty familiar with like all the audio side of things that um, that was easy. Uh, I'm a extrovert. I verbally process. I'm a enthusiast. I'm kind of like a natural entrepreneur type. And uh, what what finally got me into podcasting, I, I had been on the Bad Christian podcast twice, maybe. And then before Trump's election, uh, Matt Carter asked me to be on a special episode of Break It Down, where I gave the argument against voting for Trump. And uh, I had a bunch of friends listen to it and kind of call me like immediately after it was it was live. It's like a Facebook live thing. And I was like, uh, so probably is like the rush of adrenaline from all that positive reinforcement <laughs> afterward. I was like, okay, I think my, this might be my medium. Um, I just liked, I liked the medium and I, I had done some stuff for our band, for my other band, Pacific Gold. And we did podcast episodes for each song and they were short, but it was like fun. Like it's kind of fun to work in the program and, and put the thing together and so kind of all that stuff just congealed. And I was like, yeah, I think I think this might be a good medium for me. And I, I like it. I enjoy listening to your podcast when you speak, as whether you're a guest or on your own podcast. I'm always like, wow, I never thought about it that way. You can articulate your thoughts very well. I was wondering if it was going to be like, do you believe in podcasting? Like for us, you know, is like we believe in just how podcasting is kind of like the new printing press, you know, where just be able to get your ideas out there to the world, whether it be 
for right here and now or for future generations, like our grandkids, you know, find these one day, oh, you know, grandfather was crazy stoner or whatever you think are his crazy ideas. But it's one of those things that your ideas are making an impact. They aren't falling on deaf ears. You know, even if like you said, if it impacts a handful of people, you're, you're doing something good in the world. And so that's why I was kind of asking about podcasting. If it's something you see it like a vehicle, kind of like the printing press, how it changed the world, getting ideas out there where people didn't have a voice before now have a voice. Yeah, I think that there is probably there's some inherent benefit to the democratization of podcasting in terms of, um, you know, you don't you don't always want gatekeepers hold, you know, determining who gets a voice. That's part of democracy, for instance. There's also a dark side to that, which is, uh, you know, Alex Jones can have millions of listeners. So, like Andy, he's a devout follower of Alex Jones. <laughs> I am I not know. a devout follower. I may just happen to defend his being uh, kicked off, or I, I would say the move of kicking him off those platforms was not the greatest move. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I might be fine. I mean, I'm actually pretty pumped. Like, I saw that the families of Sandy Hook are suing him for libel. Sure. That's and the, that's yeah, the way and they to have the complete it. right to do that. Yeah. I just think totally squelching someone's voice and taking it away to where he can't uh, continue any form of operation, uh, which uh, he, he is. There's obviously listener supported stuff, but yes, you can say what you want on your podcast as long as the, you know, iTunes or whatever thinks it's okay. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I'll leave this to the to the um, Congress to debate. But, you know, should we think of the Internet and social? Should we think of social media sites as like public utilities? That's how they think about them in Europe. Um, I don't know. I have I don't know. I don't have a horse in that race, but I just will say there's a real crisis of authority. People don't know who to trust. I think that uh, th there's a crisis in news. There's a crisis in politics. There's a crisis in uh, churches. There's a crisis in authoritarian like hierarchical churches like the catholic church there's a crisis there's a crisis in non-hierarchical churches like in baptist and evangelical churches where no one knows who the hell to trust and it, it seems like if you just have enough power Paige patterson or bill hybels you can do whatever you want mark driscoll so i like it i i mean i love that like i can reach thousands of people from my studio if i just get the right people on the on the show who are interesting. I love that. I also think, I, I don't think that like all of it is good though. It's, it's just like the printing press. I mean, you can print really good books and you can print really yeah, unhelpful books and develop that group. Yeah. You can print propaganda and find people with like-minded and yeah, it, it could be, like you said, both very good and very bad. It's just a tool. Yeah. So it's both. So yeah. speaking of group think there, uh, just to play a little thought experiment, if you were still doing Depolarize and, and we're going into 2020, what would just be... I am, be... by the way. We, we still have a third. The third season is in the middle. We're going to finish it out. Yeah. Really? So there's like six or seven more episodes coming this year. Okay. Can you can you That's maybe cool. give us a hint? Do you have a title for number one or a working title at all? We're doing another... Um, there's another episode on tribalism. We did a part one earlier this season. There's uh, an episode or two on the reconciliation between the black and white church. There is an episode that's going to be on both You Have Permission and Depolarize with Michael O. Emerson, who's the dean of North Park College in Chicago, about... Really, it's sort of the best explanation I've ever heard for why white evangelicals are so bad on racial issues. Um, it's a very it's a very sophisticated book length argument that he makes in an hour and a half on the show. Uh, another thing about politics and religion affecting one another 
it's kind of, you know, it's more of that kind of focus on the overlap between politics and religion because I'm just much more interested in religion than politics. Right. And and that is, it is going to be released or is available now? That will be released probably starting in like February or March for Depolarize. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. So yeah, guys, uh, if you listen to this at a later date, it might be available. So listen to that right, uh, right now for sure. Mm. Reconstruct then. Reconstruct was the next one. Yeah. Reconstruct is uh, coming soon. So it doesn't take a lot of work for me to be involved in Reconstruct because my co-host, John, does all the editing, books the guests, everything. I just show up and prep and record. Uh, and I believe we have an episode of that coming out in the next couple weeks, our first in a year and a half. And then we're going to just release them as they are available from here on out. Um, but he's his life is far busier than mine, and he's the one who does the heavy lifting. So the reason kind of that I started You Have Permission is I was realizing how burnt out I was getting on politics. I wanted to do more faith stuff, and I wanted to do a lot more than John had the bandwidth to do with me. So I just... In American typical fashion, I struck out west on my own. <laughs> Very nice. I'm actually really curious. Um, you say that the faith topic or religion topic just interests you a lot more. And I've listened to your first episode of You Have Permission, and I loved it. I'm in a deconstruction of my own. A lot of us um, here in our community are as well. Um, my question, what is it about Christianity in particular that that you still are in that camp, that you still consider yourself a believer? I mean, as you've deconstructed, would you say is an experience the thing that you've had, that you've experienced as a real living God? You think it's a theological thing where if you've looked at other religions and you like what Christianity has to offer as far as the hope message, or, or you think it's just something as simple as that's what you were raised in, and so that's just what's familiar to you? Why Christianity for you, Dan? That's a great question. And I, I would say like I'm, I'm still thinking about this question. It's one of the one of the most interesting questions I think in the world. There's kind of two parts to this. The first part is about four or five years ago, I started trying out contemplative practice, you know, meditation with a basic Christian goal, basic Christian language involved. And m people have different experiences when they try this. My experience was like overwhelming joy from what... Uh, and, and acceptance from what I can only describe as God. But certainly, I certainly think that what I'm experiencing is the thing that most people have called God. And so that's what keeps me religious. Uh, I would basically have to pretend that those things didn't happen, or I would have to explain them away as some sort of artifact of human psychological evolution or something like that. Th those are my two options. And since that experience lines up with the experience of so many other people over the centuries, people whose lives I would like my life to look like as I get older, it seems much more reasonable for me to stay religious than to say, yeah, it's probably just evolutionary psychology. It's probably just some leftover bullshit. So then the question is, well, why stay Christian? And part of that is that I was raised Christian. The, that's an interesting one. I don't think, for instance, that I could spend, let's say, five whole years of my life learning as much as I could about every other major world religion. If I did that, if that's all I did for work, you know, I lived my life and my job was to study other religions. And I traveled and I went, went to India and I went to the Arab world. At the end of that time, I still don't know what it's like to be a Muslim or to be a Hindu. I don't know what it's like to be a Zoroastrian like Freddie Mercury's family. 
I won't, I won't know that. I don't think you can know what it's like to be in a religion unless you're in it. And so what should I do then? Should I become a salad bar religionist, you know, or should I dig into my own tradition? I, I can imagine that people might experience the living God and go, this looks way different than the religion I was given. That would be really interesting. That's not what happened to me. What happened to me is I experienced that and I said, this looks like the best of my religious environment, the religious tradition I was raised with. I'm going to seek out those parts of this tradition. Even when it was blended, kind of, because it was in a meditative form, correct? That's kind of where you've experienced the most real encounter with like, yeah. what would be a living God was, was through meditation. And that would be looked as like Eastern. <laughs> I wouldn't call that a blend. I would say Eastern and Western contemplatives both utilize meditation. Meditation is just a thing you can do quieting your mind and uh, and and sort of relaxing your body. And I did the Christian version of that, you know, centering prayer and imaginative prayer and uh, praying the Jesus prayer uh, re repetitively. But, but yeah, so you could imagine thinking, well, that's all just a scaffolding to get to God and God's not contained in any one religion. I think that's probably true. God's not fully contained in anything that any person or group can put together. In fact, that's a that's been a very central claim of much Christian theology over the centuries. It's called the apophatic tradition. It's, it's this idea that basically the most clear thing we can say about God is what God is not. It's not what God is. It's very hard to use language to describe a transcendent reality. You know, it's we can say things like God's not a being. God is the ground of all being. And we can make sense of that. But if we start to try and add more to it, it's very difficult to know how confident we could possibly be in that language. I mean, what does that mean for your relationship with Jesus, per se? Are you more into, like, the general idea of God, or is it like Jesus is still the Messiah? Or or how do you feel about the divinity of Jesus? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't—currently, I don't feel like I have any reason to reject those basic claims of Christianity— I think that what I have found is that there are different ways that people interpret that language. And what I was told growing up is there's only one way to interpret that language, and it's this way. And and just the the bare fact of the matter is that there are Christians of all sorts, and they do in fact follow Christ, and they do in fact interpret this central language differently. And so, you know, there's people to my left who will say, yeah, I worship Jesus. Jesus is an archetypal story, you know, the hero's journey or something. I think there's quite a bit more going on than that. But if that's all they can do and they want to stand next to me at church, great, let's hang out. There's a, there's a huge continuum of actual practice and actual interpretation of this stuff. Um, but for me, th this is maybe the second part of the answer to Omar's question is that what I find in Christian thinking is with the incarnation, especially the incarnation and the crucifixion, especially a God who is here with us, a God who, who sinks to our level and who's willing to suffer with us to suffer at our hands even. And that kind of self-giving love, self-sacrificial love, I can't imagine anything better than that. And I can't imagine anything more loving than that. And so then the God that I experience in my prayer and that I, that I occasionally glimpse with a film or 
you know, in a friendship or a, a kind word or a loving action, that's like, that looks like Jesus. That looks like Jesus love. That looks like incarnational love. And so, but, but if you want to say like, well, how are you going to, you know, can you prove that Jesus of Nazareth was, you know, had a hypostatic or whatever it's called union with the second person of the Trinity? Of course I can't prove that. That's a faith claim. But if what you mean by that is that God looks like Jesus in the Gospels, I go, yeah, that sounds right. I wish that I had that faith. I, I mean, I, I was raised in church, and it, there, I, I've come to a point where, even as as a father, I have thought about it, and I, I thought, well, you know, I, I've accepted Jesus. I've done all this stuff. I've, I've worked for twenty eight years at that point to feel the Holy Spirit. I've gone to every retreat. I've done all the young life stuff. I've, you know, but it, it never clicked. I just, it's, it's weird how somebody, uh, can maybe not, not chase after it and still maybe like you after years and years still have something within you that you just, you can't help believe, but you know, my mom and dad own a Christian bookstore. My dad and mom have a home group, and I'm surrounded by Christian people in every circle of my life. And I'm like, uh, I, I, f- I feel incredibly out of place now because I just, uh, it almost feels like I am a, I'm, I'm a, I don't, I'm an outsider, a complete outsider. So to me, the 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 faith journey is is an interesting one, and like you said, it's different for every single person. Because that person that you mentioned, the kind of Jordan Peterson, heady sounding type person that just wants to view it as a as a whatever to them, they're still there. Um, so I, that's that's an interesting uh, an interesting section there. Yeah, I, I just I just want to say like, man, th- this is something that I've been I've had to really think about a lot. The more I have opened up about my own practice and experience with with friends, and then occasionally on podcasts. Some people, people aren't wired the same way. You know, I, I've interviewed uh, Dale Martin, Yale New Testament professor. I've interviewed him twice. I've read two of his books. They're like super helpful to me. And I talked to them on the phone and he was like, I don't have that experience that you describe. It's like, I don't, that's not what my life has been. I'm, he's like, I'm like a type A person. I get up, I do the work and I go to church every week and I experience God in different ways for all this stuff. And I was like, okay, you 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 really do have a different faith than me but we can share the same creed, right? And so I think we need to make a lot of room. And for you, I wonder if, you know, through your uh, community and and through whatever, if possibly there have been expectations placed that someone else has placed on you, that you've placed on yourself, perhaps, uh, maybe for really good reason, based on your community, that are not that are are unrealistic or that just won't line up with your personality. And, and so I, I don't, I mean, we could have a much longer conversation. Maybe we'll be talking about production music. Uh, But, you know, I would say don't beat yourself up for not having this experience. There are traditions uh, two that come to mind are Calvinist and certain kinds of Pentecostal traditions that really want to say, you're not really a first class Christian until you've had this experience. And that might be, tongues, or it might be this obvious indwelling of being chosen, being elected. Um, and that's bullshit. Uh, anybody can be a Christian. Anybody can pattern their life after Christ. Anybody can show up to church week after week and take the Eucharist. So 
doesn't make you an inferior believer or even if you're not a believer, whatever. But the, the lack of the experience doesn't. I just got some approval from Dan Koch, y'all. I mean, he just told me I can I can be at peace with my. He just soul. gave you permission. You, you he still, did just give me permission. I did. You you do though if you want to be if you want to follow Christ. There's of course a whole lot there that we didn't fill in, and you still have to love your neighbor as yourself. Um, but yeah, you don't have to feel bad about not having experience that I've had or your parents have had. Um, Probably your parents and I have had opposite experiences with Christian bookstores, for instance, <laughs> if they own one. Well, not to not to dive too deep, but they're actually they're the type where you know you can come in and and pretty much uh, get something for free if you s- explain to them that hey, I'm really hard up right now. Can I can I just get this? I yeah. I'm, I really need this. So maybe maybe not, but but more than likely, yeah, Berean stores and 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 whatnot. Oh, g- oh quite yeah. literally, god awful. Yeah, yeah. Although I did discover some pretty cool bands with the Berean demo tapes. But like, for instance, with your parents, like maybe if if you want a a little a new little angle on your faith or at least the faith that you are given, just start with that. Start the fact that they're willing to give people free stuff who are in need. It's their it's their livelihood and they're willing to do that and go, Okay, what's that? Is that their faith? Is that my faith? Do I have do I believe that I should do that? And just there's a kernel and see where that goes. I like it. Yeah, that's good. That original question um, for me, Dan, and listening to Andy's story, I think a lot of us can relate to the whole belonging but not feeling like you belong, especially as the culture, the climate, politically, whatever you want to call it, is happening more and more. I know myself um, have a hard time like saying, hey, this is this is my group. I want to identify as Christian because you get the evangelical thing you're talking about with the Trump and that whole, not that Trump's a bad person. It's just that you start to realize, okay, well, this this is starting to look less and less like me or like where I want to be going or the direction that I want to be going. And so that's why I do appreciate what you were doing there with Depolarize, but also um, what you're doing with your new podcast, You Have Permission. I did get to listen to the first episode and I thought that was incredibly awesome how you had the, the guy who was like a C.S. Lewis scholar. It's really got me thinking about my faith in a new way of like, well, there's hope here. And what I'm going through isn't uncommon in Christianity, you know, throughout the ages. Yeah. And so you can look back on smart people now or smart people from the past who've written books and stuff like that. And, and you can learn through their experience and not have to necessarily like fumble through where I'm at right now with not really feeling like I belong in any rural camp, but still want to hold on to the truth of Christ. Omar, I might go farther and I might say in 2018, if you don't feel in between two camps, on almost any question, you're doing it wrong. Oh, thank you so much for saying that. <laughs> uh, seriously. I mean, this is kind of – Alan Jacobs talks about this. He's a professor at Baylor. His, he has a short little book, 130 pages, called How to Think that I've loved. It was probably my favorite book um, of 2017 that I read. And he and he's just like <laughs> – I mean, he's like had a really hard time finding a church because he's theologically a bit more liberal, but he doesn't want to go to a hashtag resist – Episcopal service every Sunday because politically he's kind of centrist and he's just his whole thing is like um, we, we've, we've just really lost a lot of the ability to disagree with each other and to even be clear about what arguments we're making. And, and you know, to, to use politics as an example, but this is true in the church. This is true everywhere right now. Uh, if you are on the right, all you have to say is Trump. 
And then 40% of the country will say, yeah, we agree. If you're on the left, all you have to say is not Trump. And then 40% of the country will go, yeah, we agree. <laughs> then there's this 20% in the middle who are like, um, they actually have to explain what they think. And those are the most interesting people to me right now in the political sphere. And I think in the cultural religious sphere as well, because once tribalism kicks in, the whole thing gets pretty fucking boring, honestly. Yeah. It's just everyone's Absolutely. reading the everyone's reading the lines of the party line and mm -hmm. saying the approved phrases. Mm -hmm. And even if some of them the are correct, yeah, they're they're on the script. Even if it's true, it's like, okay, but you're not actually arguing for anything. Uh, and I actually think arguing for things respects people. That's interesting. Arguing for things respects people. Well, I mean, you still have to have some healthy boundaries because there's a lot of people who like to argue who have zero respect, you know, for other people's opinions. They just want to, you know, get out there and be heard and, and say mm -hmm. their opinions and state their opinions and have no desire to want to change or do anything different. You also have people that'll just go out there and say, oh, you're a racist or, oh, you're a snowflake. I mean, it's yep. it's just, uh, you know, I'm on the side, the right side of history or, you know, whatever. I'm virtuous. And it's it's. It's sickening. Oh, my gosh. It is. It's it's really <laughs> gross. And uh, what's going on there is people are signaling to their own group, their own tribe, that they have uh, what's needed to be socially accepted in that group. And, you know, that's what people have always done. We've done that for hundreds of thousands of years. And there's security found in being a part of a group. Yeah. Why people join churches, too. You know, there's right. it's there's an identity thing that comes with that and security and comfort and knowing, hey, I've got people who agree with me. It's how we 100 percent. But when you so you don't have control over what anyone else says or how they respond to what you say. But when you make an argument for a point, you are respecting the other person by saying, I know that you are a rational person. Here is my reason. Now, once you do that, you don't have it's it's out in the world. You don't have control anymore, uh, and so you very often on Facebook or Twitter, you're not going to get the same respect back. Um, and then you have a new decision to make. How do you respond to that? Uh, but I don't think we should forget how to argue for things with with arguments. I don't just mean, of course, to argue and, and to yell and to call each other names. That's not really that's not an argument. To it's called a. Um, ad hominem attack if you say well you're a piece of shit and so i don't have to believe you that's not an argument mm. right or if you say if you take the the worst version of someone's view that's a straw man argument that's not really an argument either uh, of course you're going to beat that argument because it's a bad version and the number the percentage of people off the top of my head who regularly engage in true respectful dialogue with arguments is like two percent of people or something like that. And so we should expect if we're in 2018. 19 now. Uh, we're in 2019. The second time I've done that. Oh, geez. <laughs> I got to update my clocks. Um, you know, I think we should just like not like we should just expect we're in a very polarized time. People are mostly going to be stupid until some of this is worked out and give them grace and give ourselves grace. But also let our like remind ourselves that we don't have to take it all so seriously right now because not very many people are making very serious arguments. That's good. I'm glad you explained that. It's also important, though, behind all of that with the arguments and, and being able to look at things from different angles is the benefit and the good in that, right? 
like the yeah. ability to sit back and hear two opposing thoughts and think them through rationally without getting upset or arguing or yelling or getting to, you know. Yeah, but that's only like 2% of people. I mean, that's what... Right, that's why we need patience. And I think that's what Dan was yeah. saying is this realizing that people have just been not trained well. There's no other way to say it. There's no yeah. real good examples. And you look at the leadership that we have, not even Trump, let's say, just in general, what politics represents and how our leaders are responding to this stuff. And then you, there's no wonder we as a people group are just going to re- kind of like respond the same way. And so I think there's not a good example. So I guess be the example is the best thing you really can do. I mean, there, we get occasional examples. The um, The family members of the Charleston Eight who were killed. Uh, you know, they publicly forgave Dylan Roof, first thing. We get examples like that occasionally. We need to, we probably should be putting, paying a lot of attention to those examples when they when they come around. But they're, that's definitely not the norm. Nobody expected them to do that. That's not what you do nowadays when something right. happens. That's not how you get points. And they just pulled a straight up MLK. And that, you know, and that was incredible. I mean, I think that's like the, the single most heroic public act of the last few years was that family those family members yeah you know it's yeah exactly especially in this day and age you would just expect some some lawyer to come in tell them what to say to get the most money at the time and uh, i don't know or just publicity and this and that and things get warped with this day and age and the opportunities to make money it's almost like if we if we all deleted one just one app on our phone, Instagram or Facebook, just one, that would probably quiet things down quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, I have this little thought experiment I've been thinking about. If I unfollow, I'm I'm out, I'm off social media now. I, I only go on to check if people are have questions about the podcast or and I moderate the um the you have permission Facebook group. But other than that, I'm off. I I try not to look at my feed or anything like that. But if I was back on, I think if I, for instance, on Twitter. If I unfollowed everyone the minute they made a straw man argument or they did an ad hominem attack on someone's character or they pulled a punch, you know, for laughs for their own group, like who would be left? Oh, boy. And I think I'd, I'd probably I'd follow 90 percent of people on Twitter or more. And then I'd probably be better off just follow, just listening to those 10 who were left. Right. And then I could really ignore the noise on on both ends. Well, there's an added layer to it now with our modern technology. You can be someone who's rational and logical, but if you miss the opportunity that one time for a two-second soundbite, you don't recognize like, oh, this is, you know, or you're distracted or you had a bad day. Well, that's it. You're like, you're ruined, like forever. <laughs> like in the whole nation, we'll just remember you as this terrible person. You mean in terms of like... <sighs> like for if you're... For like the Charlottesville families, for example, like it took not just the strength of character and the training and and um, the you know the wherewithal, but to also look at it and recognize like this is our chance, you know, to stand up. Like we have to do it right right now, in the middle of like absolute grief and rage, probably to recognize like this is the time to do it, not you know like two weeks from now or a month from now when you've had time to process like. We have to do it right now. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what their thought process was on timing, but I would just say the fact that they were able to do that so quickly speaks to their character, their habits. They didn't. I mean, if they were able to pull that off so quickly, they must be the kind of people who respond that way. 
to something Absolutely. like that, which means they're far more Christ-like than I am. And and if we want to know who should we be looking to for our faith, we should be looking to people like that. Absolutely. You're good at, you get good at what you practice. And if you can do it like that, then you've practiced it. Exactly. And Ethan, I think what you're referring to is like the outrage culture. Yes, like. yeah, absolutely. And, um, they're just waiting for you to like say the wrong thing, make the wrong move, and then you're branded. Like, look, see, I knew he was that person. Even if it was 10 years ago and they can find a sound clip. <laughs> right. Yeah, and, there, and there's some really interesting ethical questions going forward as, as uh, media is becoming easier and easier to manipulate, video and audio both, and all this stuff. I mean, I, I just read uh, Jonathan Haidt's latest book, with Greg Lukianoff, the coddling of the American mind. I loved oh, it. Oh yeah, thought it was fantastic. Um, call he out was on culture. Joe Rogan recently, and it yeah. was great. Yeah, I li- I listened yeah. to that, which was uh, a pretty good summary of the book. Actually, you could you could listen to that and get most of it. Although the book really um, fills it out quite a bit. But call out culture is hopefully something that we will look back on and shake our heads at. Uh, we'll see how long it takes and if that ever happens. Um, but it's, you know, at the end of the day, it's just people, it's just people being insecure people. Uh, it is scary how much power the mob can wield Mm -hmm. at the same time. We mostly don't have physical mobs anymore and that's better. (laughs) Right. You know, we don't have the crystal knocked (laughs) of Germany when they go through and throw rocks through every Jewish store window all in the same, you know, that's a much worse kind of a mob. Uh, but the mob should be resisted. I have a episode coming soon with a conservative female uh, author about how to resist the mob, her being on the other side of a lot of issues as I am, but uh, thinking through these questions. And that's on uh, You Have Permission? Yeah, that's You Have Permission. That'll probably be in the next like two or three months that'll come out. I actually just got through listening to the Alien episode. Yes, um, my man. <laughs> Alien Christ. Hell yeah. Alien Christ. Alien, Alien Christ. <laughs> Alien Christ's all over the universe. Yeah, Dan, you said that sounded like a like a like a metal band, a black metal band from the Pacific Northwest. It's a great black metal. It'd be a great black metal if I had a black metal band. Alien Christ, one hundred percent would so be the, da- the band name. Yeah, I really, really enjoy that episode. Um, I was looking through, you know, the different titles or whatever, and that one appealed to me the most as a big nerd. So I, yep. I checked it out and I uh, loved what, uh, you know, the conversation you had with the astrophysicist. And and uh, I just thought it was really great. And I certainly am right now plugging everyone to go and check out uh, your podcast, certainly. And I think it's I think it's really was that important. the one where they talked about think, syphilis man. pods. I've enjoyed it. Syphilis <laughs> pods. Yes. Infatuation with syphilis pods. To be clear, by the way, that episode is not about UFOs or like truth or a movement. It's about like uh, the vastness of the universe. And, you know, if you accept evolution as an explanation of how life developed, then you got to at least think it might have happened elsewhere, too. It it probably has, maybe. And then what does that say about the Trinity? That's basically the the conversation. So, uh, so, Dan, we were uh, we were having a little conversation earlier today. Um, and I, I've listened to all, uh, all four of the episodes that are out right now. Oh, thanks, man. And, uh, I was commenting on the bleed between episodes where, you know, like something might, something came up in the, uh, evolutionary episode and the alien episode. And we were talking about cephalopods mm. <laughs> and, uh, cause I, I have <laughs> yes. to say for listening to four episodes in like the last couple of days, I've, I've now heard you mention cephalopods several times. I'm just wondering, um, <laughs> what's the fascination there? <laughs> okay. So 
Yeah. No. So, okay. Cephalopods are like cuttlefish and, and octopi and, and related animals. And I read a book recently by an Australian philosopher called Other Minds, and it's about them. And the reason that cephalopods are interesting for this conversation is that cephalopods are really intelligent creatures. They're not as intelligent as humans. They're not as intelligent as dolphins. But dolphins are mammals, which means on the evolutionary tree, our common ancestor with, with dolphins is like not that far back in, in sort of ecological or whatever, geological time. But our common ancestor with cephalopods is like one of the earliest worms on the floor of the ocean, mm-hmm. which means that their, their nervous system, which is where we get, you know, brains, uh, evolved on an, its own trajectory. We have a central nervous system, you know, spinal cord and brain, and that's true for all mammals and all amphibians. They don't have that kind of nervous system. Their nerves are spread out all along their bodies. So their arms, their their tentacles are like more brain-like than our arms are. Hmm. Our central nervous system tells all our limbs where to go. It's different for cephalopods. And it's not hard to imagine if human beings don't destroy the planet, which we will before this were to happen, it's not hard to imagine cephalopods evolving to the to the point of self-consciousness the way that humans are self-conscious. I was just going to ask you that. Like, how many millions of years do you think it would take before they do uh, develop that self-consciousness? Well, if you think, I mean, I have no idea. But, but how many so millions of years of have, has it already is, occurred before? You yeah. Know, it's, it's been hundreds yeah. of millions. So all of life is like 500 million years. We got to talk about it. It's like, this is young Earth, right? We're all young Earth. <laughs> right? Of course. Yeah. Oh, well, we're just doing a thought experiment. Oh, right. I forgot. Um, can we change the subject? No. Um, <laughs> so if all life is 500 million and then I think like early, early human-like primates is like 2 million to 5 million years ago. Mm-hmm. So once you – like it's kind of interesting. Once you get there, then like – Homo sapiens are like 250,000 years old. It get it gets quick. And and that's why we'll be able to probably destroy the cephalopods habitat before they have a chance to do this. But I mean, my understanding is that evolution the food th- chain. there's a lot of randomness and so but you could imagine in a couple hundred million years it happening and the sun's going to go for like billions more years. So that's like certainly within the realm of possibility on our planet, not even having to think about other planets. Just here. And one of the things that the author of the book talks about is like encountering an octopus because they are intelligent. They like like certain uh, scientists and don't like other like lab technicians. They squirt water. They figure out how to like squirt water at the light bulb and short it out so that the lights would go off. You know, they don't like being in captivity. Um, It's just crazy. They they they're they're like slightly social with with human beings. And so that's the interest there. And that's why they keep coming up. I don't think there's any more mentions for the next handful of ep- episodes. <laughs> well, I would have minded if there were. It was – I was really interested um, when you were talking about the, you know, Fermi and asking the question, you know, where, where is everybody? And uh, my brain immediately went to like, well, what if there's cephalopods in an ocean in another galaxy? There's no way right. we would ever know them. And then you went there. I was like, ah, good. <laughs> I did. Uh, it doesn't that doesn't solve the Fermi paradox, though. The Fermi paradox is like given enough time um, and the age of the universe and in fact how young the sun is compared to other similar stars, 
we would expect that within the Milky Way galaxy, we would know if there were other life here. And Why doesn't it apply to other galaxies? Because other galaxies are so far away that they like many some galaxies are moving like the the visible universe ends at some point. But I, my understanding is that we believe there is stuff on the other side of the visible universe that's moving faster than the speed of light away from us. So mm -hmm. we can't even see it. Right. And and other galaxies are so far away that they're not like 50 years away or uh, a million years away. They're like a billion light years away. So we would not. And, and, and besides just light, they, first of all, they would have to emit incredibly bright light for us to see it, you know, like a sun or something. And then secondly, uh, the kind of communication waves, you know, that we might pick up, that stuff just doesn't. It goes even slower than light. So my understanding is that we we never expect to ever know of any life outside of uh, the Milky Way galaxy. It's just too far. Yeah. And so the Fermi paradox doesn't work outside. What it does say is, well, it's probably the universe must not be teeming with life. That's what it can say, uh, at least not intelligent life. But for the conversation about the incarnation, you only need one more species anywhere in the universe and it seems unreasonable to bet against that given that there are billions of universes which each have billions of stars in them yeah damn. so if you want to say but well god fermi, chose this one well so We're the fermi paradox reduces that to just instead of billions of billions it reduces it to simply billions <laughs> which is still a lot it's it's totally mind-blowing it's just insane we are just so special god chose us <laughs> Dan, I don't know if you know this, but I'm yeah. wondering how maybe how does the cephalopod or whatever type of species they have in the lab, how do they know how do they know that there's someone there? Is it uh electricity? Can they feel is it like magnetism? How do they how are they aware that you are there? Well they have eyes. I, I mean I think they it's just do, vision. Really? Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Octopi octopi and, and cuttlefish have eyes. They have two eyes, so they have the they we do share with them um uh the what's it called? Like a symmetrical body plan, right? Like your left eye looks like your right eye, your left arm looks like your right arm. You know, they have four uh four limbs on each side or whatever they're called. The tentacles. Tentacles. Um most animals share that body plan, but like earlier life didn't all. So that's kind of one of the reasons we know that we go back at least to this like worm that's on the floor there where it's the left and right side of the worm's body are symmetrical. And that original worm Not was like, named Joey Spinson? <laughs> Joey Spinson, yeah. Yeah. One more shot. One more shot. <laughs> but this, I'm not like I'm not a biologist. This is like I'm this is what I've picked up here and there. I just find it fascinating. It is fascinating. It truly is. It is fascinating. Said twenty per <laughs> said twenty percent of listeners. <laughs> right. Well, I mean I think most of our listeners will definitely want to go check out your podcast for sure. Cool. I mean, it, it's, I will vouch for it. It was a super interesting listen. So we also talk about things like salvation of non-Christians and predestination. That one was pretty and good. Evolution. We're not, yeah, we're not only talking favorite. about octopi just so people know <laughs> and aliens. That's great. That's that first one. I particularly recommend the uh, CS Lewis guy, um, 
no one I know ever knows about the story of Emmeth in the last battle. And I was I was ready to hug that guy. <laughs> oh yeah. Ethan got to nerd out. The last scene of of the Chronicles of Narnia is is pretty much not the last scene, that's kind of like heaven, but one of the last scenes of the entire series is this MF character who was like on the wrong side. He I mean, it's funny, like the the people who serve Tash in Narnia look a whole lot like Arabs. <laughs> <laughs> little bit of 1940s uh, England creeping into the Narnia series there. A little bit of racism. Um, but but C.S. Lewis, of course, does something really beautiful with that, right? Like he he says the, to this character, Aslan says, anything you did lovingly in the name of Tash, you actually did in my name. And anything hateful that people do in my name, they actually do in Tash's name. And and so that's that's sort of the vision of – that's Lewis's vision of God dealing with people from other faith traditions. And uh, that seems right to me. Yeah. It molded a lot of people. I know Elizabeth, she couldn't be here today, but my wife, she considers herself probably more on the universalistic side of things at this point and really can point to that as a child, really shaping her when she first you know, was like reading yeah. Nia, like that made sense to her. And so from that point on, in dealing with other people, other religions, she always kind of had that look. You know, I was like, well, I mean, there's good people in every religion. Who am I to say where they're going? So, yeah. You guys want to talk about hell and annihilation and universalism? I don't know. How much time do we have? I got time. <laughs> we got time. It's been we got time. about an hour, but. Let's talk about it. As long as I'm not annihilated, I can keep talking about <laughs> well, this topic. Is it forever. annihilation or are we going <laughs> to. I'm so interested in it. Like a fire. I mean, which one is it? Well, I think what's interesting, uh, I think that the real serious theological problem comes with eternal torment. Um, that's the that's the problem. I think with annihilation, I mean, the, the real problems come just with, with the torment. I mean, it's just, it's hard to understand how that could be just in any, in any meaningful way. For eternity, especially. Um, I mean, if it was proportionate to the sin, maybe. But I have exactly. to have a God that's going yeah. to like unproportionately because you didn't say the right name in the correct. I mean, well, then you have to get into what is sin, you know, and sin's different for everybody. Then how, how can like one person who you know, didn't sin their whole life not enter into somebody else who, right. you know, quote unquote sinned, but then said the right prayer on their deathbed, you know, is now allowed to, to not be burned forever. So. Right. Well, so there's actually an episode coming up soon um, in the next uh, two weeks, I think with uh, this woman, Bonnie Christian, who wrote a book, giving all these different options. It's called a, a flexible faith. And it's like, it's one of the, it's like a four views book, but with 20 different topics and much shorter descriptions. And uh, we talked about atonement theories and what came up in that conversation that I didn't know or hadn't known, hadn't heard for a really long time. The idea, I, I had heard people say this to me, well, you're sinning against a infinite perfect God. So your sin counts infinitely and therefore can be judged infinitely. And that's never really made sense to me. And she told me why it's never made sense to me. That is based on a medieval understanding of justice. In the medieval world, if a lord stole a goat from the king, they would maybe pay a fine. Yeah. If a peasant stole the same goat from the same king, they would be put to death. And probably their because families. Just and they're maybe their families because justice was hierarchical based on your social station. And so for Anselm, he's like, God is bigger than any Lord or King. So God's infinite. It's kind of like America. If you have money, you're good. It's like anywhere <laughs> in human history since the monetary system replaced bartering. Uh, so 
for Anselm and for people back then, that made sense. Well, God is like the ultimate king, so his status is higher than our status. But that's not the way that we think of the judicial system now. We think that, no, same crime, same punishment. doesn't matter if you were born poor or born wealthy. You, you, do, the, you do the crime, you, you do the time. And so that is why – so some people are still working on that old Anselm model, not necessarily realizing that they are. But it's so counterintuitive to us. And so if you're going to talk about annihilation, well, I think annihilation, I hope that's not what it is. I mean, I hope that God really pursues everybody to the end, to the to the um, non-bitter end. But I think that God is within God's rights to have someone cease to exist because existence is a gift that we don't earn. So you don't have the same justice issue with annihilation that you have with eternal torment. That's kind of, and then I think universalism is beautiful. And I think there's uh, reasons to think that that would be the case. Um, it's not, you can't totally prove it though. I don't think. And what would you say to someone who, you know, would say, well, the Bible doesn't allow for any of this or, or the Bible is unclear on it. So that's heretical what you're saying. Like, I mean, how, how would you respond to somebody who says something like that? Well, if they want to talk about the Bible, and if they're genuinely interested, then I will lay out my basic argument about the Bible, which is that the Bible is not univocal. The Bible does not speak with one unified voice on most theological questions. It does on a handful. There's no part of the Bible that says Jesus is not Lord, right? There's nothing. There's no part of the Bible that says Mary was not a virgin, for instance. Um, there's no part of the Bible that says that, uh, well... It's not even true. I was going to say there's no part of the Bible that says that God's love does not win out in the end, but Ecclesiastes basically does say that. <laughs> so the Bible is in tension with itself. And, uh, you know, like the gospel narratives are in tension with each other. And and the the church has always uh, accepted that, that that's a part of the that's a part of the deal. And so when it comes to universal justification, annihilation or torment, there are verses you can pull for any three of those. And what you need to have is an argument for why the verses you're pulling for this view are the ones that the other two categories should be read in light of. Now, the reason I said, do people really want to talk about it is because most people, you get there and they're like, actually, I don't want to argue this with you. I just wanted to <laughs> tell you you were wrong. But if they're really <laughs> willing to think about it, that's what they got to think about. And, and then you can make an argument for why it should be the universalist passages that the other ones are read in light of or why it's annihilation. Um, and actually, I think that the preponderance of verses goes to annihilation. I think that that's the, what the Bible gives the most evidence for. And I think that universalism comes from later theological understandings. But lest we be afraid of later theological understandings, here's one that's a later theological understanding, the Trinity. Mm. So don't be too afraid of that. The Trinity is not in the Bible anywhere. It, it's put together later by the church through all of Scripture that God is a trinity. Neither is the Romans Road either if we're going to go there. I mean, that's Billy Graham. So. Yeah. Who was a universalist. Well, no, he was an inclusivist. Yeah. Oh, and, yeah you explained and that, that pissed people off big time. What is inclusivism? Inclusivism is the idea that not only Christians are saved in the end. Oh, okay. Uh, gotcha. Christian inclusivism says God saves more than the visible church. But God saves whoever God saves through the work of Christ. 
That's Christian inclusivism. And that's the first episode of the show. And I think I would lean into maybe agreeing with that. And I really like you guys' analogy of the cross picture of like God on one side and man on the other. And the cross being the bridge between the two. And the guest you had on, um, I don't remember his name right now, but you guys discussed how basically a lot of people don't know what the bridge is made of. When you go across a bridge, you're not wondering, like, what is this designed of? What's the story behind the bridge? How did the bridge get there? Right. You're just using the Who bridge. Who is the architect? So yeah. If God, if right. Or you might not even bridge, know you're on the bridge, they say. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, like, uh, Michael Ward, who's the C.S. Lewis scholar, he says, you know, Lewis had this thing. We know that all who are saved are saved through Christ's work. What we don't know is that all who are saved through Christ's work know that it is Christ's work saving them. And that's actually a logical leap to go from one to the other. You have to make an argument for that. And I actually don't think there's a very good argument for it to be made. Like, I mean, most of the scripture that people will call is like, is just kind of common sense stuff. Like, yeah, of course, Christians are going to know that it's Christ because they're Christians. They know that. But there's really nothing that says you must know. All of Jesus's exclusivist language about I'm the way, the truth, and the life, it never mentions that people have to know exactly what's going on. And it only takes five minutes to think, how well do I understand my own atonement? (laughs) To realize how fucking little we understand it. We don't really get it. It's way beyond our pay grade. And so if I understand it that little, well then, like, what's the cutoff? How many right beliefs do I need to have about God? You know, like it, you get into this really weird kind of thing. Or how many times do I have to say the sinner's prayer? Right. right. Or which right, one exactly. of the 1400 different denominations got it right? Yeah. Right. Right. Isn't that why we, we have things like the Nicene Creed? I was just going to say that. Yep. And stuff like that, yep. that compacts it all into like, you know, one concise thing. And then that's kind of used as a standard by certain sects. Of- right. Well, the Nicene Creed, uh, the way we say it now, would exclude the Eastern Orthodox Church, and they split over that in like the 11th century. The Apostles' Creed is a little simpler and would include all major branches of Christianity, basically. I like to go with just Jesus is Lord. For me, that's the whole statement. That's what makes you a Christian in terms of beliefs. If you believe Jesus is Lord, we're talking about Christianity. If you don't believe Jesus is Lord, we're not talking about Christianity anymore. So if you don't believe Jesus is Lord, would you say that you could still get to God by following the way Jesus lived, even though you don't believe he was the deity of Christ or uh, incarnate of God? If you could say living, loving the neighbor, putting a selfless life first, those type of behaviors is a way, if you can find that in any denomination or any religion, I should say, then they're on the right path maybe to God. I would say, number one, I'm not, I don't know. And to say that I do know would be to sort of take the Lord's name in vain, I think. I would say there is some evidence for the the um, example you gave. There is the story in one of the Gospels where a, a teacher of the law comes to Jesus and says, what shall we do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, you know the Torah. How, what does it read to you? He says, love God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, you've answered correct. Do this and you shall live. Then they say, then some other people are trying to trip him up and say, well, who's our neighbor? Who do we have to love? And then we get the Good Samaritan. Uh, That's the context for the Good Samaritan parable. But I mean, if we want to take that version of Jesus literally, which every one of the Gospels is a particular construction of 
the historical Jesus. None of them are the man himself. We don't have access to the man himself, just like I don't have access to my great-grandfather who I never met. Um, but if we want to take that portrayal of Christ as authoritative, then that's what Jesus says. And the funny thing is, it's precisely the people who say they take the Bible literally who would reject that. Yes. <laughs> uh, because they don't actually take it literally. They take parts of it literally, and they have their own systematic theology that they just don't acknowledge. Well, Ethan, you were kind of talking about something like that today in Marco Polo, um, about your own story. Yeah. Um, I, I grew up in a very conservative Christian bubble, then had the whole, oops, I'm gay, <laughs> wrestle with spirituality. And I kind of landed on the side of like, I'm not really sure that I believe this is all real anymore, but I do believe the idea of this is probably the best way I know how to live. I was bringing in the, um, Dan, if you're familiar with the silver chair, is bringing in Puddleglum's speech there when he's in the witch's spell and he breaks through by saying, you know, I'm, I'm a Narnia and I'm going to live like there's a Narnia, even if there isn't one. Um, so I kind of yeah, try to live yeah. that way um, for the kingdom of heaven, even, even if there isn't a kingdom of heaven to live to. I mean, I basically think that's faith in the modern world for those of us who are willing to take the modern world seriously. I don't know that that's faith every day, but... I think it is if you are someone who lives in the world, is paying attention, and you never have a day where you have to where that has to be your faith, that is a gift of God. That is a grace. I don't have it. Um, I have days where I have to live as if the kingdom is real and I don't believe it. Uh, my friend Trip Fuller, who does the Home Brood Christianity podcast, he is fond of saying something that I find very helpful. He says, the way we think about it, at least in the past, there was a line between atheists and theists. Now the line runs down every one of us. And it depends on what day it is. And it depends on what we're going through. And I would argue that that does not make faith less real. It probably makes faith more real because it requires commitment of the kind that Abraham had with Isaac. Um, Abraham is told that Isaac is going to be, I mean, he assumes Isaac is going to be the the nations that come from him. He's the sole heir in an heir-obsessed culture. And God says, sacrifice him. I mean, that that is much more doubt. This is why Kierkegaard picks up on this for fear and trembling. No experience that you or I will ever have will be as doubt-inducing as that story. <laughs> that is the ultimate. Uh, and so I think we can use that as like an example of like, that's the extreme, but yeah, we don't know. And, you know, Ethan, with your experience, I, I imagine that realizing that you're gay ends up throwing into question all kinds of things that various people have told you because they have also told you that you can't be gay and, and follow God. And so then how much do you trust all the things about God that you think you know, based on the fact that you've had the well poisoned, as it were? And that sucks, man. I'm sorry that you had to go through that or have to continue going through it. You know, I have to think of it. In, I think of it in light of my wife and I's continued infertility suffering or in terms of uh, a friend that died recently of cancer in, at 33. And, you know, so there are all these things, right? So um, there's just what you just described to me sounds like Christian faith. Honestly, I don't have any problem with that. 
Well, Dan, speaking of uh, your friend who died, um, I actually used to do a podcast with local musicians, and we recently re-released an episode that I did with a buddy of mine, and I think we're talking about the same guy, Lucas Starr. It's Lucas, yeah. Yeah, um, just passed away December. Um, he talked about you on the episode that we did. Uh, where what? He talked about, uh, well, he talked about Sherwood. You know, oh, He wow. said that you guys bought him a guitar uh, and brought him out on tour and how cool that was. Um, he didn't I, fucking I, show it to me at the time. <laughs> that, that piece of shit. He, uh, no, I love that guy. He was, yeah. he was a total bully to me, but I took it. I took it well. I know that he meant it in love. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, what was it like working with him? Uh, uh, well, this is 2006, I yeah. think. So yep. we were 21. I was like 21 or 22 and he was like 20 or whatever. Uh, <laughs> what was it like working with Lucas? Gosh, I hope he can hear this in heaven because he would get it. I don't know if that's how it works. Probably not. But, um, he's watching on the big screen working right with Lucas. He would he okay, 20 year old Lucas is the Lucas that I know. And he was just a little shit bag, uh, <laughs> on purpose. You know, he would like make racist jokes just to get us angry at him that he didn't mean but he would lean into it so hard because he's from texas that he could get us to believe it for a long enough time that we would get really mad at him and then he would obviously be kidding yeah. uh he would like pin me to the rv couch and dry hump me and he was like <laughs> much stronger than me and i like i'm very i'm 6 240 but i'm not i don't have a lot of muscle i was not as fat then i was probably 210 or something but he could just pin me he's a total he was like a wrestler and uh and he would just like just make my life hell for, if he wanted to in a good-natured way um but you know he didn't end up staying in the band he's not really a guitar player he's a bass player so right. he was filling in and it was it was always going to be temporary i think he was with us for like four to six months and uh but he he was i mean He's a very unique guy. He gave me a lot of shit. I gave him a lot of shit. Uh, I was very fond of him. Um, and, but, but I have been thinking about his death recently and, you know, he got colon cancer, colon cancer is in my family. My uncle died of it before I ever met him. And, uh, he just got out of the blue and then he died four months later. And what, what do you do with that? I mean, you have to think about that's real. That's the world that God created, or at least that God allows to persist for the time being. Um, a lot of people lose their naive version of their faith when tragedies like that happen. It's very painful. It's often probably better than the naive faith they had. Um, but we have to give people space. You know, Ethan, I'm sure you have a version of this with your story. You need space during that change and we can't and, and if and if we as people in community with those who are suffering if we force them to hey i need you to keep raising that identity flag that i share with you that's us projecting our shit onto them why do we need that why do i need you to keep waving our group's flag it's not for you it's for me right Man, I resonate so strongly with that. Um, in in the middle, at the same time I was going through the faith and sexuality, I actually lost two friends. Um, 
And so, like, everything you're saying just was like, oh, man, that that describes that whole period of my life. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and we go through it differently. You know, my, my wife and I have had uh, a lot of things sort of overlapping over the last three or four years, just by chance. Just a lot of suffering has happened sort of concurrently. I, I call it the never-ending river of shit. Mm. It will end, though. It just feels like it's never-ending right now. And it's changing us, and I, I think it's changing us for the better, but, like, doesn't feel like that right now, and, you know, all, all that stuff. We just kind of have space. And I think the, the key thing here, uh, when you're in a situation like that, is you have, we should remind ourselves that usually if somebody is putting us against the wall during that hard time, it's their it's their own thing that they're going through and we don't have to carry that for them we can love them we it's our job to love them uh sometimes that might be stepping out of relationship for a while depending on the situation uh but like you don't have to solve it for them they got their own thing to deal with you can deal with your own stuff it's all you can do hearing you talk about all this reminded me of a quote uh from Alexander Solzhenitsyn He's from the Gulag Archipelago. I, I don't know if I said that right. I probably didn't. But he said, Gradually it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. And I just, I don't know. Just as, like as you two were talking, that was really yeah. resonating with me. I was like, oh, that. Yeah, and that's just like a basic Christian principle. That's That's basic Christian orthodoxy right there, man. That's original sin. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, and there are certain kind of utopian ideologies, and this is why Jordan Peterson and all of the intellectual dark web guys like to talk about Solzhenitsyn is because uh, there's their their whole program is against sort of radical leftist ideology, and in these kind of more utopian ideologies, it's not people that are the problem; it's systems that are the problem. Um, I think it's obvious that it's both: people are a problem, and systems are a problem. Um, but yeah, so I, that's a, it's a fantastic quote. There's a reason that it, and he saw a lot of suffering, right? Yeah. He, 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 that was a hard one, that was a hard one uh, insight for him, mm-hmm. basically being in these labor death camps, uh, I think for 10 years or more. And the book's so big, <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, I have it. I, I got it for Christmas one year. I haven't read it. I read his, his novel, A Day in the Life of Ivan Desenovich or something like that, which is like much shorter fictionalized version of his experience. And it's it's very harrowing. It's just incredible what they had to go through. Agreed. Well, Dan, this has been awesome, man. Where can people find you at? Where can people check out your, your new podcast, You Have Permission? Yeah, I'm not on social media except the uh, Facebook group for You Have Permission, which is unfortunately limited to my Patreon um, patrons uh, because I want it to be tight and I wanted it to be kind of familial. Uh, but all three podcasts are free. Uh, you can go to dancokewords.com. My last name is K-O-C-H. And all three of the podcasts are on there. Um, you Have Permission is the new one. It's it's everywhere. You get podcasts. And yeah, there's four episodes up now, fifth one tomorrow. So probably by the time this airs, there's five episodes. And also make sure to check out Depolarize when that premieres again for season three, right? It's the second half of season three. Nice. Yeah. We took a holiday break. Yeah. Okay. And it sounds like he's also going to have some stuff released this year with his other podcast. Yeah. It looks like there'll be some reconstruct coming. Uh, we have a kind of what we've been up to episode coming soon. And then we have interviews with Greg Boyd, Kevin Van Hooser, Esther Meek. And then we'll do response episodes 
uh, responding to each of those interviews as well, which is kind of a thing that we like to do on that show. And will you be in Texas in a couple of weeks? For the... I will. I'll be at the Bad right Christian on. Conference. Yeah, in Dallas. Are you guys going to we'll be there? You. Most of us will. We have a house, and so um, we'll come over have a beer. And... Oh, hell yeah. yeah man. Come to the Fade to Gray house, man. It'll be a good time. That's great. I'll be staying on the Emory bus, I believe. <laughs> yeah, for free. Uh, but that's they didn't awesome. invite us. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think there would be space. Wow, I'm really excited to hang out with you guys. Yeah, I'll be there. I'm gonna. I'm kind of a utility player. I'm gonna be on various panels and and breakout sessions. Wonderful. And stuff. We're cool. we're looking forward awesome. to hearing from you, man. It's gonna be a really fun time. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you guys for having me. This is such a great conversation. Well, bef- hey, before I before we let you go, I do have to say I almost ran you guys over one one day when you were in Yuba City. I was coming home from work. I think you were walking to New Earth Market where I was working at the time. It was like a local Whole Foods. It. You okay. guys, you guys were walking on this Butte House Road. I was coming home from work. Oh yeah, Butte House Road. Yeah. Are you from here? No, I just spent so much time. We we used to live at Joe's parents' house before every tour for like a week and a half to rehearse. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I know Yuba City pretty well. So yeah. I was, I was, I was get, I was like getting a CD or something or whatever, and it was kind of raining out, and I look up. And I'm going over the white line, and here I see four band-looking dudes, and I swerved, and I was like, that was Sherwood. <laughs> it was the most random. You recognized us in the rear view? No, I reckon I I had I saw Joe's, because Joe had the curly hair at the time. Right, Joe's big yeah, hair, and that's yeah. Just, that's so signature, and I... That's either Sherwood or at the that's drive-in right. yeah, here yeah, in yeah. the city. <laughs> yeah. and I, or Coheed and Cambria. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And right. I had an Afro, too, at the time, so we were kind of Afro brothers. But anyways, I just had to tell you, I almost ran you over, and you didn't even know it. Thank you for not doing yes, that. Thank I you. I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, love it, man. Hey, dude, thanks again for being on. We really appreciate it, and we'll let you go. And thank you for giving us an, an hour and a half of your time. You're you're fucking awesome. Yes, thank you very much. It was great. We, we'll have to pick a night that I'll come hang out at the... Uh, Fade to Gray House. Yeah, we love it. We yeah, love it. Man. Sounds like a plan. It'd be great. Very fun. Thanks, All right, guys. thanks, Dan. Appreciate Later. it. How's it going, Fade to Gray? I'm here to talk to you about insurance. I know. I know. No one wants to talk about insurance, but it's something that all of us need. If you're looking for a reliable, trustworthy insurance agent, let me direct you to the right place. My good buddy, Chad Johnson, who's servicing Missouri, Illinois, Oklahoma, Kansas, and Arkansas, as well as Iowa has all of the home, life, or small business insurance that you would need. If you're interested in living in this area, please message him at 417-421-2925. And you can get a no-obligation quote for all of your insurance needs. Again, that number is 417-421-2925. Thanks. That, that was awesome, guys. I really enjoyed uh, that Dan Cook interview. I feel like it went a lot better than I even anticipated. I knew he was going to be a great guest, but just him being laid back and the conversation we had, that just I feel like he was enjoying himself too. It was really good conversation. Can I make a confession? Make a confession. Okay. So I've heard Dan Koch speak about politics on Pastor with No Answers, Bad Christian. Okay. And I just did not really – I hate to say this because he's such a fucking cool guy. Yeah. I didn't really think I was going to enjoy this conversation with him because I don't really, I, I haven't really resonated with his politics, but I got to say, I love Dan Koch after having that conversation with him. I really enjoyed the time talking with him. I mean, my, my mind has been changed about Dan Koch. 
<laughs> he flowed so well with us, you know. He just yeah. laid back. It wasn't there was no. I feel like there's some superior intellect maybe on his side, but there was no like feeling like he needed to like put that out there or anything like that. I mean, I feel like just listen to him before. He was real heady. Well, the listeners can obviously tell that he is much smarter than all of us. Correct, <laughs> correct. But it, it didn't feel, it didn't feel like he was frustrated. You know, it felt like he could still like speak on his level. He didn't have to like you know, like dumb down his speech in order for us to have a conversation. And I felt like he just, just one of the dudes hanging out. And I'm looking forward to hanging out with him at the Fady Gray House, drinking a beer, and continuing some of this stuff. Yeah, you know, he he. I, I kind of came into the, the interview the same attitude as Chris. I, I guess I would say that I had that that same attitude towards his politics. And and I, I not that it even matters. Not that it affects my feelings towards him. Sure. It's it just it's just someone that you listen to and like, oh, I, I really disagree with a lot of stuff he says. But yeah. guess what? We didn't talk about that stuff. So it was a it was a damn good episode. Like he was uh, we talked about cephalopods possibly being like a future like god but like not at the same time it's <laughs> just, we, we we dove into topics yeah i just didn't know i'll be honest i didn't know that dan had this side about him so i was totally won over i mean not that not that he needed to win me over but sure. i i just i am such a, a fan of him and i i see i just see a completely different side of him and i'm Likewise. super thankful for it i like dan to begin with just to put that out there dan i liked you before we had you on here so you know me and you were we, still we cool. know you're listening on the plane right <laughs> I now i didn't dislike him i just i didn't really care for his politics so i wasn't super excited about the episode but but i've got i gotta say i mean he's won me over for sure i, I agree with you andy and omar do you kind of want to maybe talk about how that's what Fade Degree is all about? <laughs> I got a little plug in there in the beginning, and uh, I'm realizing now, guys, that um, I say that a lot. Make a drinking game out of it if you want to, but that is what Fade Degree is all about. You know, just a bunch of people Drink. coming together with different like religious beliefs, different political beliefs, but being able to have an intelligent conversation. I really like what he had to say about respecting somebody enough to argue with them. You know, not yeah. just dismissing them dismissing their ideas right away but listening to their ideas and being like well what about this or what about that you know it's not just to argue for argument's sake but to argue to come to a better understanding and so here at yeah. fade to gray that's what we're all about <laughs> well it sounds simple but it's it's it makes so much sense because you are saying to that person i think you are smart enough to um to understand what I'm saying and you're willing to engage with me instead you're of you're worthy enough to have a conversation. Yeah, you know? oh, and that too. Right. Yeah, exactly. What's interesting is what he's really encouraging is critical thinking. And that's the one thing that typically goes out the window when you start talking politics. Yeah, absolutely. And specifically within this generation, we're all about clickbait and those big headlines without actually looking into stories and being able to look at multiple sides. So I think that's awesome that he encourages that. It's um, it's interesting. So I didn't know about Dan. Um, I, I had no idea his views on politics or anything. So all I knew about him was what I heard over his new podcast episodes that I listened to this week. So it was all very much, um, you know, faith-based theology, existential thinking about, you know, um, you know, theological aspects of things. And I was a little, concerned isn't really the right word, um, maybe apprehensive. I was apprehensive coming into it um, because I knew that I kind of existed on the other side of left of where he resonated. 
thinking that, you know, like, well, I'm not even really sure that I believe in this whole Jesus thing anymore. Uh, and I know that my interaction with the church is usually one of like, well, well you're not even a Christian anymore, so we don't want to, you know, but talking to him was so natural. And he just, you know, wrapped the whole thing right up and was like, dude, you're, you're still, you know, it sounds Christian to me. And I was just kind of like, man, alive. Like he just blew me away. Holy shit. Dan Koch led Ethan to Christ. <laughs> yes, I thought he was about that, to lead Andy to Christ there for a second. Like, I'm watching that bromance and focus. Not, not happening. <laughs> Not I'm super jealous it of just, that, by the way. It's, <laughs> well, he, I don't know. You're just kind of assuming that there's like a God, you know, at that point. Right. Which, you know, I just, I, I don't know if I'm there yet. I just don't know. Like, do I believe that, that everything just kind of happened? No, I believe there's some sort of design creator, but I just don't know what this God is that we all talk about, that we all grew up on. Like it, it even for Dan, I just don't understand with all the experiences he's had, like how does he describe God? Like, what does that even, what do you mean when you say God? Like what like, is I don't, God? I don't, yeah, I don't know what I mean. So I don't want to, I don't want to spend a bunch of time thinking about it because it's, it's, it stresses me out and it, it's, it gives me so much anxiety that I don't need. It, it, it's so, so unneeded. So, I would agree with you, but I would also say that Dan kind of mentioned that he also doesn't really know what God is, and it would be crazy of him to try to define that. And I liked that about what he had to say, even though he still claims to be a Christian and still thinks that Jesus, uh, you know, is the is the Messiah. Um, of course, I can't because of my background as a Baptist. We think the Bible is the fourth member of the Trinity. You know, I can't divorce the idea of the Bible being the word of God and that being everything that characterizes God. Like if, if it doesn't say it in the Bible, how do we, how are we supposed to know it's true? So for me, I, I still can't believe, you know, that I I can't worship a God who would kill a group of people for not loving him, you know? So I, I, I still can't do that even after having the conversation with Dan. And I think it was a great conversation. I'm, I'm happy he's where he's at. Uh, you know, it didn't, justify, I guess, me wanting to rethink uh, about the, those things or, or even question those things again. But that was, I think, the beauty of the conversation um, that I liked how he kind of like wrapped things up. It's like, okay, well, I don't know. You don't know. And go with what you do know. It's like, you know, if, yeah. if you see this aspect of like using Andy's parents as an example, of, you know, the selflessness being willing to, to give of their livelihood, you know, if, if you see that as something that's honorable, something that may be an aspect of God, something that you want, then why not go after it? Why not chase after it? You don't have to have all the right answers and have it all figured out to be able to experience something that may be God. And that's where the whole meditation thing I thought was really interesting to me. And, and yes, it's not just an Eastern uh, thing to meditate. You know, yoga doesn't have the full monopoly on that especially it's satanic omar especially it's because satanic. you see a lot of like meditation references in the bible as well you know meditate on these things think on these things and and to do the whole christian meditation like he ascribed to where he was praying as he was meditating i feel like even I mean, you can still meditate and focus on anything I, I i don't know andy i i hear you and chris and i appreciate where you guys are at but but also really appreciate just that the aspect of like you know, I'm connecting to something 
and I'm using this vehicle called Christianity to get there. So there's there's something uh, there's something to it. You know, what I mean? well, I think that for me, you know, you're talking about how he says you're you're searching for it. You're on that journey. Um, I've already been down that road and I've already done that journey. So at this point, I'm just kind of like. I'm cool, man. Uh, you know, annihilate me. That'll be fine. <laughs> you know? So you're saying you're if, no longer on the bridge that Christ has made, but you're living underneath the bridge like a homeless person. <laughs> I have no. <laughs> Chris I, is quite literally in a van down by the river, <laughs> spiritually speaking. Yeah. I No, I don't know. I don't know where I'm at, and I don't know what that looks like, and I'm totally okay with that. Like, I, I love the fact that it's a mystery, and whatever happens, happens. Like, I, I actually embrace that, and I think that's really... I think that's really cool. And for the, rec- for the record, though, Chris, I, I love that about you as well and our community and what we're doing here at Fade to Gray, you know, where you don't have to have the group think. We don't have to all agree as far as our theological, you know, doctrines or anything like that, like even in the same God, same religion, to be able to have intelligent, worthwhile conversations and actually have a true, meaningful relationship. Well, that's one place where I would disagree with Andy because I still love having the conversation. I still love, you know, debating it in my mind. I still love doing all that. And so I, you know, that's why I think I appreciated the conversation with, with Dan Koch, uh, cause he's obviously super intelligent and, and obviously a sweet guy. Like I just didn't even know that about him and I'm glad to have met him personally to, to, to be able to see that. And I, and I enjoyed the conversation very much. Yep. Looking forward to round two. And thanks guys for listening. It's been a lot of fun. It has. On on that note, go check out Dan's uh, new podcast, You Have Permission, and Depolarize, Reconstruct, and see him at the uh, Back Christian Conference uh, Valentine's weekend. Cool. All right. Well, so everyone stick around to listen to Ethan's final thoughts. All right, guys. So here's the deal. We are officially a legit podcast. You want to know why? We have a Patreon page. So we decided to give you guys as many options as possible for sponsoring us. So here's what we got. We've named these tiers as if you were part of our family because that's what you are. If you're one of our Patreons, you are truly one of the Fade to Grey family. So at a dollar, you're our cousin Jim. The benefits of joining at a dollar is that you'll be added to our Marco Polo group and you will also have your name read on our podcast. So if you want to be part of that group, you need to sponsor us at a dollar a month. At $3 a month, you get all the benefits of a dollar, and you are our Aunt B. You'll also get to join us on a monthly Zoom call. And don't worry, if you miss the call, we'll record it for you and send it to your email. At $5 a month, not only will you get the benefits of Cousin Jim and Aunt B, but you will also receive a sticker from us and some original artwork by the Fade Casters kids. At $7 a month, you'll get all the previously mentioned benefits. Plus, after two months at this level, you'll have the opportunity to join the Fade Casters on a segment of your choice. Or you could also decide you'd rather not be part of one of our segments you want a segment of your own. So the Fade Casters will interview you for a five minute segment. At the $9 level, you'll be our grandparents. At this level, you'll have all the aforementioned benefits. Plus, after three months of sponsorship, we'll send you a branded t-shirt. And if you are our rich ass Uncle Scrooge and decide to sponsor us for $2,000 a month, you'll have everything we've 
already mentioned. Plus, you'll get a very exclusive, very special FTG calendar full of nuance and innuendo. If you'd like to join the FTG family by becoming one of our Patreons, just go find us at patreon.com. We're listed as Fade to Gray Podcast. You can also find a link on our website if you go to fadetograypodcast.com and look under our sponsors tab, you'll find a link to our Patreon page and you'll be able to choose which tier you'd like to sponsor us at. We look forward to seeing how many of you decide to join the FTG family. Thanks, guys. Hello, friends. It's Ethan here with some final thoughts. I had a bit of trouble trying to figure out what I wanted to highlight in this particular segment. We talked about such a range of topics, and the more I reflected on them, the more I found myself running down intellectual rabbit trails. Eventually, I realized that it's not what we talked about that mattered most to me about this conversation, but rather the fact that we did, in fact, talk. You'll notice that at the beginning of our conversation, we threw in some lighthearted jabs regarding what we perceived to be Dan's views of politics. He responded by talking frankly, and it allowed us to know more fully what his views were. More importantly, I believe it set the stage for the rest of our dialogue to be more open, more honest, and more engaged. I think the best way to know someone is to have an open and honest dialogue with them. We're fluid beings. I don't believe everything I did 10 years ago. and Sometimes, I don't believe everything I did 10 minutes ago. But we live in a world where something we say or express can be captured in a snapshot with technology, and it allows people that interact with that snapshot to believe that they know what we think and feel. Sometimes it's true but oftentimes it can be outdated or incomplete. Talking openly and honestly with people in a respectful, engaged, and shared flow of conversation allows us to know more completely who they are. Nuance is difficult to pick up on through sound bites and pixels, but it's organically available in healthy conversation. By no means am I suggesting that reading is without merit. It's one of my favorite things. But it's also important to remember its limitations and to seek to balance those limitations through conversation. You all know that we here at Fade to Gray came together through social media, but what you may not know is that we engaged with one another for quite some time through written media, such as Facebook posts. It wasn't until we changed our primary method of interaction to video messaging rather than social media written posts that the friendships we have now began. We had the nuance through video messaging that we lacked before. Suddenly we could see one another's faces and emotions behind what we said and how we reacted. We could hear it inflected in our voices and it made things more complete. We stopped focusing on phrasing or specific words and we stopped looking for ways to break down what the other person were saying, and we were able to see the humanity and commonality between us. It's really important for us to be specific and intentional about engaging with the people around us in conversation. It can take someone that we thought we knew 
and open up a whole different side to them. It's what makes communities. Stay tuned for more great episodes coming.